Um, hello, everyone. I am here today with Dustin Smith. Um, Dustin is the host of the Biblical Unitarian podcast. And I also want to congratulate Dustin on having his first uh, child a couple of weeks ago. Um, you have a, a six week old boy. Um, and part of the reason I'm bringing that up is I recently had uh, my second daughter about eight weeks ago. Um, so for people that follow my channel, you might have noticed I didn't have any videos for a while in there and I'll blame that on something like paternity leave. Um, but uh, so I'm happy to get started back up again with Dustin. So um, do you want to maybe tell us a little bit about where you came from, uh, Dustin, what your faith journey was like and, and where you've ended up? Yeah, I could do that. Um, I guess people might use it to understand a little bit about me and kind of where I've come from. Uh, so I pretty much grew up in a, I guess, liberal evangelical church environment. Um, my dad was a pastor at an early age, uh, but we were in church every Sunday and every Wednesday. But, you know, we really didn't, we didn't learn much. It was mostly about ethics and about kind of being a good religious Christian person whatever that means, which basically meant don't say any bad words and don't lie and don't take anything that doesn't belong to you. And um, we were loosely taught about God and Jesus, but I wasn't really indoctrinated into anything. And uh, I was really challenged at the age of 18 to actually start reading the Bible for myself. And, you know, that's kind of the age when college freshmen are taught to uh, start to engage critically and start to think for themselves. And, you know, I thought to myself, hey, that's no one's ever told me I should do this. That's a great idea. I probably should start reading the Bible for myself. And uh, I remember all those, all those bad students went off to spring break and they were <laughs> drinking at age 18, 19. And I was like, nope, I'm not supposed to do that. So I'm going to stay here and I'm going to read my New Testament. And uh, I saw all these really neat things in the New Testament uh, that I had never been taught before. And I had kind of two feelings at that point. I had kind of a sense of wonder and joy, like, oh, wow, look at all this really cool stuff. And I had another feeling of like, why did nobody tell me this? Why was this withheld from me? And I was the kind of person of that age, uh, not with a lot of tact, where I went and I, I confronted uh, my youth pastor and my pastor at the time. And I said, well, hey, you know, the Bible says this right here. How come we don't teach that? And they said, well, well, that's not what we believe. Okay, well, well, it says this right here. What about that? Well, that's not what we believe. And I learned very quickly at a young age that uh, not all churches actually believe what the Bible says. They believe whatever their doctrine or their denomination tells them that they need to believe. And I kind of found that to be a hypocritical position. I thought to myself, well, if I'm going to be a person that takes the Bible seriously, I either need to take all of it seriously or just abandon the entire thing because I don't want to be accused of a hypocrite of just picking and choosing certain things. And uh, that kind of started me off on my journey of really trying to understand what does the Bible actually teach about these, the big subjects, the important subjects. And that led me to um, a Bible college education and graduate school and doctoral work. And uh, I also did some pastoral work in the meantime, uh, trying to learn like, okay, am I really skilled to be a preacher and a teacher or am I more interested in the academic side of things? And I learned I was a little bit better at the academic side of things, uh, although uh, pastoral training is, I think it's good for the soul. It's good to, mm -hmm. to have mm -hmm. that. So uh, I do have a um, uh, an interest in serving the church with the um, with the research that I do. Yeah. 
So you so you grew up in a church that at least at some level tacitly believed and maybe kind of every once in a while taught the Trinity. And then you you changed your mind to biblical Unitarianism. Kind of how and when did that change happen? Yeah, so in my first year, this is my, my sophomore year at the Atlanta Bible College, which as far as I know is the only biblical Unitarian college in the States. Um, I was introduced to uh, the biblical Unitarian view, which is a big fancy way of saying that, you know, God is a single person and that Jesus is the human Messiah who uh, began to exist at the moment of his birth. And uh, to me, that actually just made a lot of sense. Like I wasn't a hard sell when it came to interpreting or, or changing my mind because I wasn't really indoctrinated before. Um, so like I was kind of the easy mm -hmm. person to, to learn that it wasn't a big struggle. Uh, um, I do remember uh, being introduced to uh, a book by James Dunn called Christology in the Making. And I will admit that at the age of 19, I was not able to understand everything that was there, but I was able to understand the gist of it and, and the summaries and, and the, the conclusions that were written at the end of the chapter uh, to really see, okay, this has a lot of scholarly merit to it. Uh, since then, I've gone back and read the book uh, several times to uh, really come to appreciate uh, how great of a scholar he is and um, how people really should continue to be reading him. So I know that was... 2003. So um, I've been on this track for about 17 years now, I guess. Mm -hmm. Cool. And so what I, I wanted to talk to Dustin about today is Christology in the book of Revelation. Um, on Dustin's podcast, he's been going through, I think you're like seven or eight episodes deep into a series on the book of Revelation. And I believe you did your PhD thesis on the book of Revelation and have even, you know, continued to study and delve into it since. So you're, you're something of a, an expert on that topic. Was there anything about the book of Revelation that sort of drew your attention? Why did you decide to do your, your thesis on that? Well, a lot of it has to do with, uh, I guess, kind of my faith journey when it comes to the book of Revelation in the particular tradition uh, in which I was raised, which uh, started off as kind of a Church of Christ background, but eventually moved into like a Baptist background. Um, we really didn't do anything with the book of Revelation, it just wasn't taught at all. So I had no idea with it. Uh, and then I got providentially moved into some circles to where the book of Revelation seemed to be the only thing that people talked about. Mm -hmm. um, and they did something that I like to call newspaper theology is, and they read something in the newspaper about something that's going on in our world. And they read that back into the text, uh, which is textbook uh, eisegesis. Mm -hmm. uh, you're not supposed to do that. You're not supposed to read things into the Bible. You're supposed to allow the text of the Bible um, to have its meaning and to read that out of the text. Um, and so I, I knew that, some of the things that I had been taught about the book of Revelation um, had holes in them, like they were problematic and they just didn't make sense. And I would try to, even when I would try to teach them to some other people, they would say, oh, I'm not so sure about that. And you know what? I, I thought to myself, you know what? Like it doesn't hold weight, some of these arguments. So, you know, I, it was one of those like things that I try to study off and on on my own. And I started to actually get engaged into uh, good scholarly resources on the book. It was actually about, it was about 10 years ago, um, there was a visiting professor at TCU um, whose name is uh, Benjamin 
Summers, uh, who's a Jewish scholar, um, actually has some interesting things to say about Jewish Jews of the Trinity, but that's a different subject. And he taught a course on, on the prophets. And he encouraged me to uh, look at some particular uh, information on Revelation that really kind of got me thinking, okay, I'm onto something now. I feel like I can, like, I'm starting to actually make sense of it, although I wasn't really forming my own views on it in particular, but I was actually starting to really just be introduced to um, really what modern scholars are doing in Revelation, which is actually very good. It's actually very persuasive, I think. Um, and uh, there's been a lot of uh, progress that's been made on the book of Revelation in the last, I don't know, 80 years or something. Um, it's taken a backseat to gospel studies, but uh, mm -hmm. you can kind of understand that based on the interest of New Testament studies. Um, and in the midst of that, uh, one of the things that I started to notice, uh, this is kind of the, the basis of my, my thesis, which I don't know if it's going to come up in this uh, topic in particular, but I noticed that uh, there was a refrain in each of the letters to the seven churches regarding conquering. It says, to the one who is conquering or to the one who is overcoming. And, you know, I looked at the definition of conquering and overcoming. It comes from this Greek verb, nikao, where we get the word Nike. Uh, it means to conquer, to overcome. It means to defeat one's enemies with violence and bloodshed. And yet Jesus is telling all of his churches that they also need to be conquering. And I'm thinking, what's going on here? Is he actually telling them to respond to their opponents <laughs> with bloodshed and violence? And, and then I noticed in Revelation, it was like, oh, Jesus actually is someone who has conquered. And he paradoxically redefines conquering. And he does it in a way that is a different definition from every single known instance of conquering uh, in literature, in uh, numismatics, which is coins, and inscriptions, and iconography, and art that was available at the end of the first century in the Greco-Roman Empire. Um, and yet, when I start to look in the commentaries, I didn't see that they were putting enough emphasis on the fact that Jesus is paradoxically redefining conquering um, in such a pivotal way. Um, and so I thought, okay, I'm going to go see if I can study that. And so basically I was able to um, make a case that uh, Jesus redefines conquering uh, as an ethical uh, mandate for his readers in Revelation, at least the original readers, and by extension, anybody who reads the book Revelation as sacred scripture today. Um, and in order to conquer in Revelation, you basically need to do three things. One, you need to maintain uh, the testimony of Jesus, which means to continue to preach Jesus' gospel. Uh, number two, you need to um, you need to endure, and that endurance is a non-violent endurance, but it's also a non-accommodating endurance. You don't uh, compromise with the culture. You don't compromise with um, worshiping idols or um, or the powers that be. You know. Yeah, particularly the imperial cult. Right. Uh, and lastly, they need to uh, be willing to be martyred for their faith. They need to be. They need to endure to the end, even if it means it costs them their life. And so, all of those things, I thought as a preacher, hey, those are all preach. Those are all things that you could use. And and I think the value for me is that it actually made Revelation relevant yeah. to me um, in my culture, as it was certainly relevant uh, for those. Asian Christians at the end of the first century. Sure, sure. And something that you've mentioned in your podcast in terms of words that Revelation seems to redefine is also the word martyr, right? right? Like martyr just meant witness, like in a court document or, or something like that. It had no connotations of dying. 
but now in Christian history, starting with the book of Revelation, it has this connotation of conquering, finishing, you know, the, your, your race and your testimony to whatever violent or brutal end that leads to. Yeah, and I, I did not um, come up with that, that particular point that the book of Revelation is the point in history to where this, uh, this word martis uh, which basically means a witness. It, it refers to someone who speaks about something that they've seen, whether in an evangelistic setting or in a, um, a law court setting, um, to actually meaning someone who dies for what they speak. And it's a book of Revelation that actually makes that shift. And I, and I, I didn't come up with that. I read that from uh, several other scholars. Uh, but that helped me to kind of see um, how this ethical trend was being used in Revelation. And it just once, once I felt like I... I got it, like the light bulb clicked on in Revelation, and I understood the narrative of what it was trying to do and how it's trying to uh, persuade its readers um, uh, to act and to live differently. Uh, then, you know, I just gained an interest in it. And of course, part of that is seeing how God is described as the one who is seated upon the throne, and Jesus is described as the Lamb who was slain. And so, of course, Revelation has a lot to say about. Um, the early Christian views of God and their Christology. Yeah. So, so before we get into that, how, what would you say is the, the background of the book of Revelation in terms of when it was written, who was written by, who was written to, and those sorts of questions, like all topics virtually about the book of Revelation, this is a contentious one, yeah. but, but I, I, I'd love to hear your thoughts and what sort of the kind of latest scholarly opinions are on these subjects. Sure. Uh, some, some of those are less contentious than others. I think the dating one uh, is less contentious. Um, it used to be either you viewed it as something that happened uh, before the destruction of the temple um, in 70 AD, or something that happened after the destruction of the temple. And I think most scholars today are saying it's something that happened after the destruction of the temple based on a variety of what I seem to be overwhelmingly persuasive reasons. Um, it used to also uh, be maintained. Oh, sorry, my dog here is looking for food. Uh, okay. Um, it used to be maintained that it had to be written uh, during the time of Domitian. Uh, that actually has been opened up a little bit and say, well, okay, it could have been written um, in the 80s or even in, in the late 90s. Uh, but the point is, it was late in the first century. Um, it was definitely after the destruction of the temple. Uh, in regard to authorship, I think that's also less contentious uh, because the popular view was it was written by uh, the Apostle John or the writer of the fourth gospel. Uh, and nowadays people are uh, saying that it was written by some sort of prophet named John who wasn't an apostle because he refers to the apostles as people other than himself. Uh, in chapter one, he makes his case as to why people need to listen to him uh, by pointing out the fact that, hey, the risen Jesus appeared to him and gave him this, this revelation and this vision that he had to, uh, to give to the seven churches. Uh, if you were an apostle, you wouldn't have to make that argument. You would just say, I'm an apostle. You have to listen to me. I have that authority. Uh, and you wouldn't refer to the 12 apostles as people other than yourself. Um, and the language is actually uh, pretty different from what we see in the fourth gospel, which like even, grammatically and vocabulary wise, sort of that, yeah. that, like that kind of difference. Yeah. I'll give you an example. So you only find Jesus depicted as the lamb of God in the fourth gospel and in the book of revelation, guess what? They use two different words to refer to the lamb. So, um, 
you know, kind of like just, like sheep and or like like lamb and foal or something like that. Like in English, yeah. you could imagine two different words for a sheep. Interesting. Yeah, and it's just you know when you, when you go through and you just kind of read through the Greek of them, it's very clear that there's it's not by the same person. Um, and and even Johannine scholars today will argue that the book of uh, the the fourth gospel is uh, a product of at least two hands. Um, if not more than that, um, with at least, you know, an appendix at the end of chapter 21, mm -hmm. something like that. So, um, but you're could, not going to find... Could that be made as a case for one of the hands being the hand that wrote Revelation, but then it, it maybe gets polished up or something by someone who looks a little different than him? It, it's actually interesting that the, um, this is steering off a little bit, sure. but uh, the um, from what I've seen, it's actually, there's a lot of uh, interesting language at the end of John chapter 21 uh, that overlaps with third John. And so uh, a lot of people are actually saying that the, the, the elder or the beloved disciple or that particular community, um, there's more than one person that's involved in it because we have these, um, these plural pronouns. Uh, that actually seems to be the community that actually has polished up uh, the gospel of John, put it together and actually put uh, chapter 21 and a couple of other editorial points within it. Um, but the point is like, it, as far as like modern revelation scholarship is concerned, uh, there are not very many people that are arguing that there is um, a shared authorship between the fourth gospel. You only find it in very, very conservative circles, but that has not persuaded um, most, most scholars today. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. And I also sometimes see it in Eastern Orthodox or Catholic circles that people will will sometimes maintain that too. Um, so I guess probably the least contentious question is who is it written to? Yeah. So that, that's, that's <laughs> explicitly stated in the text that it's um, written to these uh, seven Asian churches uh, that we know there in modern Turkey, um, mm -hmm. as we would call the region today. Um, most of those uh, don't still exist today. Uh, but that, that's pretty clear. We know that the, those churches um, revered the text of Revelation. They copied it. They spread it, um, which means that they understood it. If it was something that they didn't understand as of some sort of esoteric text that just didn't make any sense to them, they wouldn't have cherished it. They wouldn't have copied it. They wouldn't have spread it. Mm -hmm. And uh, that, in, that demonstrates, I think, to me that uh, the message that was given in the book of Revelation was something that was understood by the original readers. And if it was understood by them, then it was intended for them. And we can, you know, through uh, good uh, biblical interpretation and history, um, come to understand it uh, today as well. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, so when, when thinking about what Christology the book of Revelation is teaching and what it's assuming its audience might believe or what it wants its audience to believe. What are the sort of options on the table that are historically appropriate for um, kind to that we that are the choices that we have to distinguish between, I guess? Yeah, well, you always have a tradition that you're dealing with. Uh, and actually, I just recently did a podcast um, that is dealing with the fact that people, uh, scholars just kind of casually talk about um, the dragon, the beast and the false prophet as this sort of unholy trinity. And of course the implication is that, well, that's the counterpart to the holy trinity. Um, and so there's that kind of assumption that is always there. And actually the interesting thing is that 
there are uh, some commentaries that will talk about the unholy trinity, but the counterparts are not the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So it, they're just using that language uh, kind of casually. Uh, they probably just mean like a triad of some sort mm -hmm. of grouping of three things. Uh, so you always have tradition that's there. You always have people that I think because of the tradition, they're going to read in the fourth and fifth century councils back into the book of Revelation uh, without thinking about it. Um, you know, so that option I think is always going to be on the table and it's going to be like that mm -hmm. for a long time. Uh, there are some people that actually see a, an angelic Christology um, in the book of Revelation. They see Jesus depicted um, as kind of this, this heavenly angel type figure. Uh, and they have some reasons for doing that. Uh, depends on how. Uh, there, there are some Daniel scholars that think that the one like a son of man uh, is an angelic figure and not a representative for human beings. Uh, that's actually uh, an, an open option in uh, uh, studies of the book of Daniel. Um, and of course, and, you have, and there would maybe be some historical reason that I think that that plausible. I think there possibly were Christians at around the late first century who might have had something like an angelophic or however you would say yeah. that uh christology um and it seems like the the intro to the book of hebrews is perhaps debating against such a view which would suggest that th that a view that view was held and and there are some other like early examples of that view maybe in the early second century so so i think that that is one of the options that jesus is was an angel before he was a human came down and was some sort of human angel something and then is sort of back perhaps in a more exalted place than he was previously yeah mm -hmm. so i just like i'm aware that that is that's a minor scholarly option uh, but it is out there and um you know i'm actually surprised there are a lot of scholars that just say look um the one who's seated upon the throne and the lamb are regularly distinguished in the book of revelation uh, the lamb dies. The lamb is um, the recipient of God's titles and God's prerogatives and God's authority. Uh, that's just that's a regular theme in the Book of Revelation. And uh, you know there are there are some exalted things that are said about Jesus. It's it's, just, it's interesting. I've noticed that the most exalted things that are said about Jesus in the New Testament are after his resurrection. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's after yeah. his exaltation. The fact that you know Paul would say. Um, God has highly exalted him, and the end of Matthew will say that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Yeah. Um, and so I think Revelation uh, depicts Jesus as one who is um, raised, uh, exalted to heaven, and highly authorized. Uh, but he does so uh, as the the shoot of David, as the descendant of Judah, and as the son of man, which to me seems to indicate that they understand Jesus as a lineal descendant um, that, that is a bona fide human being. Mm -hmm. So that makes Jesus a, uh, a highly exalted human figure that obviously is distinguished from the true God. Sure. So, so the options are something like uh, an exalted human Christology or a high human Christology where Jesus begins as a human being, has his human career, dies, rises again, and then is exalted to heavenly glory, which is what we would call the biblical Unitarian perspective. Um, and then there's perhaps an angel option, right, where Jesus was and kind of what was an angel, was a human angel, and is now some something. Um, and then 
you know, maybe some sort of proto-Trinitarian option. I still think that's anachronistic to put that yep. in 80 or 90 AD, but perhaps some sort of God something <laughs> uh, before, during, and after his, his human career. Um, and so, so those are sort of when we're thinking about what, what uh, does the book of Revelation say about Jesus and about God and about their relationship to each other. And we could even add the Holy Spirit in there too. Um, you know, that, that those are sort of the, the options on the table, I guess. And so I think that's sort of a, an important thing to keep in mind as we, we delve into this. So I guess my, my first sort of, I guess, in-depth question is how does, what is Revelation? And how does Revelation work in, in the book of Revelation? And, and what, what are the, the first couple verses um, about? And, and what does it say just, you know, right, in, right off the bat about um, what is Revelation? How does it work? And what is God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit's role in that? Sure. Well, I, I, I can just simply read the first verse and just <laughs> yeah, make a couple of comments on it there. But I think sometimes the easiest answers are just right there. You know, just come on, let's let's read the instructions. And um, sometimes guys aren't very good at reading the instructions. So we, we have uh, the revelation of Jesus Christ, uh, which God gave him. Okay, so we have a distinguishing of God and Jesus and the fact that, okay, uh, Jesus is giving this revelation, but he is not the originator of it. God gave it to him. And yet this is, this is the exalted Jesus, the resurrected and exalted Jesus that is still not omniscient. Okay, God still has to give him revelatory information. Uh, and the point of it is to show the, the bond servants the things that are going to soon take place. Um, he signified it. Um, my translation says he communicated it, but it indicates that the contents of Revelation is going to be uh, through signs and symbols, okay? And that uh, it was communicated by his angel to his bond servant, John. And of course, John also sent it to the seven churches. And by extension, you have that given to the, uh, the wider capital C church today. Uh, so we have a hierarchy that's there. We have, we have God gave it to Jesus, gave it uh, to an angel, gave it to John. John gave it to the seven churches and the seven churches have given it to the, the wider church uh, in our English mm -hmm. Bibles today. Um, so that's kind of what's going on. And basically the, the function of revelation here is to really, it's, it's to unveil the perspective of God if the readers were to see things from God's perspective, okay? Because in their culture, it looks like it's okay for us to meet up in a Christian congregation in Ephesus and to worship God and Jesus on Sunday, but it's also okay for us to go and to worship um, uh, Zeus or the Roman emperor uh, or, or Apollo on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. And Revelation is trying to say, no, you can't do that. You can't, you can't worship all those things. It's, it's, you can only worship God and the Lamb. You can't worship these other things. Um, and that's, you know, Revelation has to uh, use all of these signs and symbols to indicate that this is what it means to be a follower of the Lamb, um, and that these other ways are actually uh, not faithful ways of being a disciple. Sure. So um, the phrase revelation of Jesus Christ can kind of be taken in two ways, right? It's either, is Jesus the thing that's being revealed or is the, the source from which the revel revelation is coming from? Um, do, do you think that, how, how would you distinguish between those two meanings? Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't see actually Christology to be uh, a major component in Revelation as if like Jesus and the person of Jesus is being revealed in order to make a case that, oh, this is the real Jesus 
in contrast to other Jesuses that are out there. That doesn't seem to be a, uh, a major argument that's there in the book of Revelation. Of course, Jesus is talked about naturally, um, but it seems that uh, scholars today are, are convinced that uh, the revelation of Jesus uh, is the revelation um, from Jesus in the sense of that hierarchy. Uh, and that, that's kind of how the apocalyptic uh, text worked, uh, which is that you would have this, um, you know, these, these various heavenly agents that would communicate the messages of God in Daniel. It was um, a variety of, of angels or human-like figures. Uh, and so now we have Jesus as the authorized person that is, is doing that. He's just mm -hmm. communicating that message uh, directly from heaven. Um, and that, that seems to be kind of how, I, th I think that's how readers who are familiar with Jewish apocalyptic uh, would have understood that particular phrase. Right. So we so we have this chain of transmission. Mm -hmm. God gives revelation. So God God doesn't need to be given revelation. God has all revelation yeah. already eternally. He gives it and it's not seemingly all of it. It's not like God is giving everything he knows to Jesus at this particular time. It seems to be a particular bundle that that's relevant. And so God gives it to Jesus. Ge Jesus gives it to an angel. The angel gives it to John, and then John is supposed to write and disperse it to the churches. Right. So there's this, I don't know, five-person <laughs> five link uh, uh, of sending. So I, I guess um, kind of a sub-question in there is angels play a really big role in the book of Revelation. Angels are mentioned a lot. Right. Um, what, what does it say that Jesus is sending and communicating the revelation through an angel? I think it indicates that uh, the exalted position of Jesus is above angels. I mean, it doesn't just say that he sent it um, through an angel. He sent it through his angel, as in Jesus actually uh, possesses his own heavenly messenger or messengers. And uh, I think it indicates that this, this one like a son of man, this human being, has been exalted even above uh, these, these heavenly communicators, these heavenly agents of God. Um, as the one that is uh, seated at God's right hand. And that's sort of a new thing, right? There aren't examples, at least not that I can think of, of, of humans in heaven sending angels, right? It, or maybe you you know the sort of intertestamental and uh, you know extra biblical um, apocalyptic literature way better than I do. Is that sort of a, a new-ish thing that, that a human being exalted in heaven has angels at his um, sort of command? You know, I, I don't see that in like the Jewish literature, but I, I do think it's interesting that uh, if you look at the initial chapters of Genesis, that the creation of, of Adam there um, is, is, you know, all things are meant to be put under his feet. And you can see that also in Psalm 8, all things would seem to include everything that is created. Um, and, and you'd already mentioned or alluded to the book of Hebrews, uh, which seems to make a similar case. Um uh, but as far as actually having uh, a human being who is above angels and actually sending them out on missions, I, I'm not aware of any other text. Um, maybe if I had some time to like think about it or dig through, I could find something <laughs> like in the footnotes of Second Baruch or something like that. But it's not, not yeah. that I'm aware of. It's, sure. Know, 
Sure, sure. Yeah. And so that there, there's a, a kind of a, even in that, you know, just small little detail, there's a huge, I don't know, theological message that that humans have a role above the angels in, in the world to come. And that's previewed by Jesus's authority now in his uh, exalted heavenly state. Yeah. Um, all right, so I guess my my next question is is so we we get talked about, we get told about Jesus's appearance in in chapter one of Revelation, and it's a very striking description. Um, so what what can we learn from the description of Jesus's appearance? Sure. Well, there, there's gosh, just like a dozen things I'd, I'd want to say about this text. So, so yeah. I'll just, I'll just start talking and you cut me off when, when I start ranting at this point. Sure. Um, one, one of the things that I think is, uh, is really crucial to understanding uh, the argument of revelation and the narrative of revelation involves what I call um, the hearing and seeing motif. And I didn't come up with that. I read that from a variety of scholars and the way that it works in revelation is that uh, the reader or John, the revelator, um, he'll hear something. And then immediately the text will say, then he turned and he saw something else. And the point there is that what he sees is meant to further unpack what he just heard. And that's really important, okay? So like yeah. we see in chapter five, um, he hears that Jesus is the lion from the tribe of Judah. But when he turned and he sees him, he's not a lion. He's a lamb that is standing as if slain. So how do we understand this conquering warrior messiah the warrior messiah conquers by dying as a sacrificial lamb and it also being raised as well and so that sort of theological set of images interprets the other so we also see that in chapter one let me see if i can find my place here um let's see okay so he let's see Okay, yeah, so chapter 1, verse 10, uh, I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet um, saying, write in a scroll what you see. So he hears the sound of a trumpet, okay? But then he turns and he sees, it says in a, verse 12, I turned to see the voice, um, and in the midst of the seven golden lampstands was one like a son of man. And the son of man figure has a variety of, of images that are associated with him, Um uh, drawing on uh, Daniel chapter 10, uh, where Daniel chapter 10, we have one that's a human being-like person that is communicating these uh, visions uh, from God uh, to the prophet Daniel. Uh, but there's also some interesting uh, attributes that uh, are something that we would see uh, used of God as well, namely the, the white hair. Uh, that wasn't only used of God, that could also be used of uh, prominent human beings within Jewish literature, um, but a variety of images are being used here to describe Jesus um, in that particular um, uh, instance. And of course, the point is to depict Jesus as that one like a son of man who is highly exalted and someone who has been the beneficiary of some of God's authority and some of God's attributes, some of God's prerogatives. And uh, that's very important for the depiction of Jesus in the book of Revelation is that he's not just a man, not just a human being. I hear some people kind of criticize biblical Unitarian theology and saying, oh, you're just saying he's just a man. I'm not saying he's just a man. He is a highly exalted human being um, who is immortal, who is the anointed Messiah, who has been the beneficiary of 
God's authority and attributes and even some of God's titles. That's like the most exalted thing you can possibly say out of a human being. Right, right. Yeah, I, I think that that's very important. And so, so this question, the word divine is comes up in these discussions a lot, and I can find it frustrating. So because people are uh, don't are either assume a definition of divine or don't clarify very much. You know, the question, does the book of Revelation, Revelation depict Jesus as divine or not? And, you know, Revelation doesn't really use words like that. It communicates very much through images and symbols and things like that, as opposed to, I don't know, kind of uh, philosophical or, or highfalutin theological terminology. But in terms of divine, if you mean something like full of heavenly power or of great religious or spiritual significance or, you know, of transcendent importance, and it's like, well, obviously, but if you mean the one true God himself in however you would parse that out, which I think is a very narrow and constricted way to use the word divine, then it, it still seems like, no, it, it, it's something else. Uh, yeah, how, I, how, how would you how would you interact i guess with the word divine i'm throwing you a little bit of a curveball yeah but... no that, that, that's okay i i actually i don't like using that word because if we can't agree on the definition of a word then how can i sit there and say i think that this word applies in this particular context and so um you know in, in scholarship you'll find sometimes scholars say we need to we need to stop using this particular word there are actually some scholars that are saying we need to stop using the word gnosticism because we can't agree on what that term means so the, mm -hmm. i think um divine or deity uh i don't think those words are helpful because first of all they don't show up in the book of revelation okay right. if you're asking me is jesus the one who is seated upon the throne the answer is no he's not he is distinguished from the one who is seated upon the throne, okay? Does the one seated upon the throne share his titles, his authority, his power, and his glory with this son of man? Yes, okay? If you want to call that, that God shares his divinity with Jesus, okay, sure, we could, we could say that there. But the point is not everyone agrees on a definition of divinity or divine. Uh, so I just don't think it's a really helpful word to use. Let's, let's, I mean, I'm... I'm comfortable having the conversation let's just find some different words to use yeah yeah i i generally agree that the that the word divine because it's so often in modern christian american theological context just meant to mean part of the godhead that that it, it seems like yeah that that it's it's like a red herring or a wrong path um and that just sticking with words like glory authority power honor and those sorts of things which are the words that revelation itself uses are, are better at, at digging in. So speaking of titles, titles seem, and titles and names seem very important in the book of Revelation. And there's uh, the first three chapters of Revelation have the seven letters to the seven churches in Asia. Um, and each of them tend to begin with um, Jesus announcing himself using a title or two. And uh, some of the titles that he uses for himself like Alpha and Omega, are titles that are reserved for God. And so, you know, I, I hear a pretty straightforward argument, you know, it, Jesus calls himself the Alpha and Omega, God is the Alpha and Omega, boom, Jesus is God. You know, how, what would you say, how, how is Revelation using titles and, and what's going on with that? Sure, I think um, you could see like a variety of those titles and I would kind of classify 
uh, Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, and the first and last are basically three titles that more or less mean the same thing. So I'm not going to distinguish those. And so we can see that they are used of the Lord God, and they're also used of Jesus. Okay, so so okay, so we see titles formerly used of God are now being used of Jesus. Okay, so how do we assess the relationship between that? Okay, does that mean that the two figures have collapsed into one being? Um, well, that you don't see that in Revelation. You see them regularly distinguished. Okay, um, but what we do see is um, so uh, like a, a passage right here, um, uh, like in Revelation two twenty seven. Uh, where Jesus uh, says that I also have received authority from my father. Okay, so God's authority has now been given to Jesus. Presumably this happened uh, at his resurrection. And that seems to indicate that uh, things that formerly belonged to God are now being shared with this human mortal who has come back to life, is now going to live forevermore. Um, and that seems to make the most sense of these, these particular titles. So just because you see um, someone with a title and someone else with a title doesn't mean that those two are actually the same being. Um, it's it, it, interesting, the relationship between God and the Lamb. Uh, I talked about how there's this supposed uh, unholy trinity or unholy triad. You could also look at the, uh, the parallels between the dragon and the first beast. And there are a lot of things that are said about the description of the dragon that are identical to what are said about the first beast. Now, you wouldn't assume that we should collapse those two and to assume that they're all the same being. No, you would assume, as the text actually says in Revelation 13, that the dragon has shared his authority and his power with this beast. And that seems to be an obvious parallel to the relationship between uh, God and the Lamb. So I, I think so, that's So that's, that's a very interesting point, that there's this parallelism between the relationship between God Almighty and Jesus and Satan and the Antichrist or the beast, that, that there's this sort of, there, there's the supernatural being, and then there is the human representative of the being, and they, the human representatives are given the power and authority of their supernatural, um, you know, overlord, or however you want to put that. Sure, sure. I, I'm going to, I'm, I don't want to use the word Antichrist, because that's Fair not enough. a word that the, Fair the text enough. says. Uh, <laughs> so I just, just, you know, I, I know some people like to take that and run with it, but um, I'm just, just for the listeners, that's not, that's not a position that I'm currently um, persuaded by at this point. So mm -hmm. Interesting. that's just semantics. Um, so, uh, and, and another, another aspect, like the way that I would put it, uh, like uh, kind of, uh, a story that I'll tell to explain what I think is going on in Revelation is like, imagine that there's the CEO of a company who's like the chairman of the board and the CEO and the president of the company or something like that. And there's some sort of, I don't know, rebellion against his authority within the chain of command of his corporation. And, and he has a son and the son has like recently finished business school or done whatever you'd think would qualify the son to now take on positions of authority. And, and the, the CEO father is, uh, has, is going to promote his son to be the CEO and president or something like that. But the father's going to retain the title of chairman of the board or, or, or something along those lines. Mm -hmm. and, and then, you know, the, the son will suddenly then go around and I am the CEO. I am, you know, the, you know, the head of this department, I, you know, et cetera. And that he can show that like, that's him announcing his new position. Right. And it's not like 
he is his father. It's just that in the corporate bureaucracy, you know, the, there is a restructuring going on and, and there's a, perhaps a purpose to that, that it's sort of like these titles, whether it's Alpha and Omega or the living one or what have you, it, to, to say that, to show that Jesus can invoke these of himself in the context of a, of a revelation is to positively demonstrate that this authority is now his. Yeah, yeah. And I don't think this is that uh, difficult to understand from the perspective of how the readers would have understood uh, agency and authority in the first century. Uh, for Jewish readers, it was very common to understand the Israelite king as someone who basically was the human representative of God for the, the Jewish people. And, and very often in, in the Hebrew Bible, uh, the Israelite king uh, has some of the, uh, the prerogatives uh, and attributes of God shared with him. So that, that, that's not something that's brand new in Christianity. That's something that was already there in Second mm-hmm. Temple Judaism. Uh, and even for- Or the, even First Temple Judaism had yeah, that idea. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> depending on when you date the text, but I, but I, yeah. I get your point, yeah. Um, and for the, the Greek readers, you know, it's, it's very common for the current reigning Roman emperor to be uh, called the son of God because the former emperor, which was probably that currently reigning emperor's father, uh, has died and deified and supposedly, you know, exalted to the position of, of, of being God. And so the current emperor is the son of God. And sometimes that, that emperor was not satisfied with just being son of God. He wanted to also be God as well. And so there was a, a drawing on that authority of uh, the, the previously now deified and their understanding of the pantheon um, and that sort of investment into the current ruler. So this was, this was all over the place. This was not controversial. Right. Uh, and, the, and the emperors would dress like the god for whom they represented. Um, and that wasn't saying they are that god or something like that but as a demonstration of their representative agency and connection to that God, yeah. right? And, and so I think sometimes just that, that distinction, that metaphor, which was all over the place in the first century, both within Judaism and in the pagan, you know, Roman imperial context is just sort of flies over the head of modern readers. So it's just like, well, he just must be God then. Yeah. And, and, and that, that seemingly that, that connection, that sort of, hierarchical father-son authority, heavenly, earthly relationship is missed. Um, and I guess the last, the last thing that I, I want to talk about in, in the first couple chapters is, is that God has called Jesus's God multiple times. It's not just that they are distinguished, but that, that Jesus calls God his own God yeah. multiple times in the letters. Yeah, that's, that's, that's pretty crucial. You can see that, uh, I think, five or six times, uh, depending on how you read the text. Um, and, and to me, it's, I've always found it interesting to look at when Jesus says, quote unquote, my God, um, in the New Testament, you can see it uh, before his death and resurrection in the gospels. You can see it after his death and resurrection, before his ascension in John's gospel. And you can see it after his ascension and his subsequent glorification or uh, investment with uh, this this authority uh, in the book of Revelation. And so Jesus continues to have a God regardless of where he is in his his lifetime. Even uh, on his own lips. That's right. That's right. Yeah. It's also there. And mm-hmm. and the, the point is that the God of Jesus from the perspective of Revelation is also supposed to be the God of the readers as well. 
Mm-hmm. And so it's, uh, it, it's, you know, the followers of Jesus have the same God that Jesus has. Yeah. So, and then Jesus will say, my God, but also say my father. So we know that Jesus God is the father alone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and that, that's just clear subordination. There, there's no yeah. other, there's no way around that. If you're saying right. someone is your God, that, that is the, using the strongest possible language to say that you serve and worship them. Yeah. It's, and, it's subordination and distinguishing them. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It's, it's, if you have a God above you, then you are not part of the innermost being of that particular God. Right. You're not part of the highest God right. if you have yeah. a God. Right. The highest God is uniquely the thing that does not have a God. Right. Yes. Everything has a God, whether yeah. or not they're in right relationship with it is a different question, but right. everything has a God except the one highest God. And right. so if you have a God, you are not the one highest God. So I guess that brings up one last question on, on the letters section. Sure, sure. Um, are there some things, we talked about titles, names, attributes, honors, and powers and glories that are, are invested into Jesus from God. Are there any things that are still continued to be reserved for God alone? um in terms of names or titles or powers or stuff like that you know i don't see jesus being called the almighty which in greek is the pantocrator um and hebrew is uh, el shaddai i don't see that being used uh of jesus that seems to still be reserved uh for god um it's interesting that in like revelation chapter four i know it's kind of outside of the purview a little bit uh but god is regularly described as the one who is seated upon the throne. He is the one who is seated upon the throne. Uh, and again, by one, it's that, uh, mm-hmm. that, that singular pronoun that's there. Uh, and the lamb is someone who is distinguished uh, from that. And so, you know, the God can share his throne with Jesus, which means that God shares his rule and his authority with him. Um, but that's not a co-equal status. That is Jesus being the recipient and the beneficiary of God's unique rule. And so, you know, there's, there's just, there are things that are just primarily said of God. Um, and of course, some of them are shared with Jesus. But I think off the top of my head, uh, the Almighty is one of those that seems to uh, continue um, to be. How about the one who was and is and is to come? Is that a, a yeah. unique, uniquely reserved for God? And is there any kind of importance uh, to, to that? Yeah, so that, uh, I, I, that I don't see that being used of Jesus. Uh, it, it is interesting that, uh, that in chapter 17, we have um, the beast, and it says the beast uh, who, uh, who is, who was not, and is on his way to destruction. And so that mm. seems to, in the eyes of many scholars, to be um, a parallel a, contrast, a, a parallel, but definitely a way of uh, mm-hmm. subverting, subverting the, yeah. the authority or the, the claims of, of that particular uh, person or, or empire. Um, but I don't see Jesus being that that particular person. It seems that the, by drawing on God as the one who is and who was and who is to come, uh, that seems to be uh, drawing on Exodus three fourteen, where God is the the I am, which is not even a good translation of the Hebrew. It's uh, it's it's literally ehe, um, like I will be. Um, mm-hmm. So, but it's it's kind of like uh, the the self existing one. You wouldn't mm-hmm. say that of Jesus, because Jesus is someone who died and who was created uh, and who descended from other human beings. He's not the self-existent one. All right. He's not the self-existent one, and he is not the almighty. Correct. Yeah. yeah. And he's not the one on the throne. 
Um, or well, kind of. <laughs> not, yeah, not the it, not the middle throne. <laughs> yeah, I, I would say yeah. It's, it's not his throne. You know, yes. like, like, no, uh, I'll give you an example. Good, yeah. In in three, uh, it's three twenty one. Oh my gosh, I can't read this. Okay. Okay, so Jesus says, uh, three twenty one. Um, he who conquers or he overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Okay, so mm -hmm. we have this this interesting image here of the fact that that Jesus has now been allowed to sit on God's throne. Actually, it's called his father's throne, my father's throne, um, because of the fact that Jesus has conquered. Was it something that Jesus always had from eternity that he gave up, came down to heaven? No, he conquered, and then he was allowed to share. And, and we have to think about what is, what is the imagery of a throne symbolize in the pool of images for Revelation? The throne uh, symbolizes that someone is in charge, someone has authority, and someone has kingship, rulership. So Jesus shares in the Father's rulership and kingship, which is really the theology of the kingdom of God being handed over to the Son. Um, so, so I, I you know, have to nuance it, but it's, but it's not Jesus' throne. It's, yeah. it's the Father's throne that Jesus has been invited to share in that mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. ruling authority. Right. God didn't get the throne from anyone, Correct. and it is intrinsically his, but he has yeah. the prerogative and ability to invite uh, others to share in it right just as just will. as jesus invites people to share in his throne meaning he invites other human beings to share in his rulership and authority right right and so he he has received the ability to invite people into the throne just as the same way that god had it to invite him there's this sort of cascade of of invitation into the yeah. throne it's like that that congo line of hierarchy that we saw in yeah. chapter one verse one isn't it Right. Yes. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. And so so that that's an interesting point, you know, regardless of whether or not Revelation believes Jesus to have pre-existed in any sense, he he was not on the throne prior to his invitation to sit on the throne. And from other it's not specifically there, perhaps in 321, but in chapter five and other places, it's perfectly clear that that's after he has died and ascended. Correct. So that whatever status Jesus had prior to that, it was not, uh, he was not on the, he was not invited onto the throne of God. Correct. So, uh, and then there's also an interesting point about what sort of hope and status uh, the human followers of Jesus have to look forward to in that, that we, we receive the powers and honors in a sort of cascading sense through Jesus um, if we also conquer as he has conquered. Yeah, you could see that um, like in, in chapter one, verse nine, uh, John says that, hey, I am a fellow sharer of uh, persecution uh, kingdom, using the noun Vasilia, and the endurance that is defined by Jesus. And so he says, hey, I'm a sufferer with you, which means that they were dealing with some sort of uh, persecution. But I'm also a sharer in this, this kingdom, this empire, this redemptive rule. Okay, so they could say both those things, and he demonstrates the endurance that is defined by Jesus. Uh, Revelation 5.10 uh, says that uh, the Lamb has made us, or made those that have, um, uh, from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, made them to be, or made them, actually, uh, a kingdom and priest for our God. So they already are this counter-rule um, in contrast uh, to the Roman Empire, and they will reign upon the earth. And so 
we have the the typical New Testament message of the already and the not yet that mm. uh, redeemed believers are already a part of this counter kingdom, and yet they will reign and rule on the earth in the future, kind of an already and not yet thing. Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, so transitioning to chapters four and five, which are um, sort of uh, begin sort of a new um, uh, uh, focus from the the three the three chapters that are about the seven letters. Um, what I guess this uh, the first question is how does time fit into this right like when quote unquote when is John seeing chapters four and five? Because it seems to, in a certain sense, be the past. Um, like he's seeing the pre-Jesus throne room in four, and then he's seen sort of Jesus's lifetime and then exaltation in five, but all of those things have already happened by the time he's writing the letter. So like, how, how does time and sequence work, work into this? Sure. I, I think one of the things that we have to really be careful about is uh, bringing our own questions to the text and forcing the text to answer them. And, and this is really important with Revelation because there have been a lot of people that have been told that the way that you read Revelation is that there is this timeline of events uh, that you can put in history, you can mark your calendars, and if you just can understand or read Revelation in the correct way through the correct lens, then you can see the sequence of time and history going on. Um, but what if Revelation was never intended to give us a timeline of events? Would it, and so I can't force Revelation to answer those questions if it never intended to do so. So I try to let the narrative of Revelation unpack itself. And if it tells me something about time uh, or an event in history, then I want to take that seriously. But if it doesn't, then I just kind of want to leave it as it is. Um, so what we see at the beginning of chapter four is that uh, John is taken in this sort of like trance-like vision up to see what it's like in heaven, not unlike what we see going on uh, in Ezekiel. Um, and he sees this vision of, of heaven in the throne room, but there's a lot of symbolic things that are actually taking place. Uh, like in particular, the 24 elders, uh, most scholars actually think that that is a symbolic representation of what uh, faithful believers would look like. Not that if you were to see what it's like in heaven right now, you would see 24 human elders. But that is the vision of what it would look like for enthroned, uh, conquering, priestly people, because there are 24 classes of priests, and the Christians are called priests uh, in Revelation. They're promised thrones, they're promised uh, white garments, they're promised crowns. Uh, so that seems to be the best description of that. So the, it's a symbolic representation of how, at least in chapter four, how creation, everything in creation is revolving around the one seated upon the throne. The one seated upon the throne is the center of chapter four and everything works around it. And so that's there. And then of course the question in chapter five uh, is asking this question, okay, God has got this scroll, it gets translated as a book, but it's a scroll written on the front and the back. And that's probably something that's important. If God's got this scroll that he wants to reveal in the book of Revelation to us, we wanna know what's there. And the question is raised in chapter five, who is worthy to take the scroll and to break its seals and to reveal to us what God wants to tell us in this particular book? And it's interesting to those sort of questions of who is worthy. Uh, the only people that were even asking those questions in the first century about the worthiness of people were the Roman emperors. Okay, and so by saying no one on earth was found to be worthy to, uh, you know, to, to open this scroll and to understand the will and the purposes of God as it's contained in the book of Revelation, uh, that is subverting and undercutting the claims of 
the Roman Empire. Of course, that's to dissuade the original readers from compromising with um, giving allegiance to the imperial cult. Mm -hmm. uh, but then the lamb comes in that context and is shown to be the person who has the authority to do that. And of course, that unpacks in Revelation the narrative that continues to go uh, really for quite a long time. It goes, it unpacks those things in chapters uh, six, seven, eight, and nine. Uh, that scroll gets eaten by John in chapter 10, and then he is given something to speak, and that turns into the vision of the two witnesses that are speaking. I mean, there's, it's, it's really. I think from a timeline perspective is really the wrong question to ask. We need to be saying uh, how these work together in the argument and the narrative that Revelation wants to give its readers. And that's difficult to, to view because you have to kind of look at it from 30,000 feet and be able to see the markers that it puts together. Um, but I do think that good convincing arguments can be made uh, that this is a, it's, it's a narrative kind of story that's being untold with, you know, your heroes and your antagonists uh, and the and the readers as well playing a role. Sure. Um, so a uh, couple of quick questions. What are the four beasts or the the four the four living uh, uh, beasts around the throne? Or, sorry, not the beast, uh, but the 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 four creatures, I guess. Yeah, the four like I think in Greek it's like the four living things or the four living yeah. ones, something mm -hmm. like that. So. Of course, in Revelation, it likes to use its numbers, and numbers have uh, symbolic meaning. If I were to say in a restaurant that, wow, I have been waiting forever for my check to get here. I haven't mm -hmm. really been waiting forever. It just means I've been waiting for 10 minutes, and I'm just impatient. But we use numbers to, to symbolize certain things. Um, you know, if I hold up the number one, um, depending on actually my context, that could mean something. It, it, you know, if I'm being lift up on the shoulders of my basketball team, it could mean that, hey, I just scored the, you know, the winning basket. Um, if, uh, you know, if, if I'm looking up in the air and there's an airplane, I'm, I'm pointing. Um, if I've had too much juice to drink and I'm a second grader, it means I have to go to the bathroom. Mm -hmm. You know, like, mm -hmm. like, we know numbers have different symbolic meanings. So the number four uh, is generally a number that has to do with creation. There's four corners of the earth, four points of the compass. Um, and so when we have four creatures, it's likely indicating that this is creation symbolized in all of its fullness. And that's why you have various animals that are there. And I think one of them is, is human-like. And so again, it's, it's, it's symbolizing that the fullness of creation is surrounding the one who is seated upon the throne. I think that's uh, how the original author intended for that particular vision to be understood by its original readers. Sure, sure. That that that's a compelling idea. Um, and who who or what are the seven spirits? Oh man, that's a that's a bigger bigger deal. Okay, so so we know in Judaism that there are seven archangels. We know them by name. Okay, they're not all listed in the New Testament, but uh, I think in First Enoch and a couple of other places uh, they are listed. And there's like uh, there's like Uriel and Raphael, but we all know about uh, Gabriel and Michael. Uh, being two of those that are listed uh, in the Bible. Um, angels are described as spirits uh, in a variety of places. That seems to be what is actually going on um, here, is that the seven spirits are actually these these seven classes of, of kind of super angels that are there. Um, although that's disputed in Revelation's theology, some people will say actually the seven spirits is the Holy Spirit. Um, I don't find that convincing because when Revelation wants to speak of the Spirit, it'll say at the end of each of the letters of seven churches, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, one Spirit, 
So why would you describe one spirit as seven spirits? It doesn't make any sense. I mean, just we don't need a sevenfold spirit. Um, and so th there's just a lot of things that these spirits do that make much more sense with what these uh, seven known angels are doing. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm open to being uh, convinced otherwise, but that seems to uh, be what persuades me at this particular point. Mm -hmm. But in any case, regardless of how exactly time fits into this in chapter four we have the whole unveiling of the throne room of god and there are the four living creatures these seven spirits and they're uh and the 24 elders and they are, are singing songs to the lord god almighty and as far as i can tell in chapter four jesus is nowhere to be found pre-existent otherwise he's just not on the scene um he, he's not there yet but it's, it's clear that when uh as the narrative moves in chapter five, which is not a, a different scene, um, mm -hmm. you don't get the indication that thousands of years have passed. It's just that um, he's just he's just not right right there. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, you know, I, so I, I, I guess I would be cautious of saying that, well, chapter four is sometime back in like prehistory and chapter five is some place in the present um, because it does depict, again, those 24 elders, which seem to uh, be symbolic of conquering Christians. And of course, John is is lifted up there as well. So it does seem to be, um, you know, I think something that is uh, relevant to the time period in which uh, John was written. But I, I don't know, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't put too much emphasis on the fact that Jesus is not there in particular. Um, mm. I, I don't know. I'm, sure. Okay. That's interesting. So like in other Christian apocalyptic literature, like the Ascension of Isaiah, Jesus is some sort of angelic being who is commissioned by God to go down to heaven and then returns, right? That that's so. There there's other books in sort of the Christian milieu that come, you know, they're probably either a century or more later than the Book of Revelation that that have this idea of a pre-existent Jesus who gets commissioned by God to go down to earth for a mission and then returns, um, perhaps in a even more exalted state than he was the first time we sort of talked about that as the angel Christology. Um, but it doesn't, there is nothing like that here where Jesus is depicted in heaven before his human existence and given a mission from God or God the Father, or however you wanna put that, to go down to the earthly realm. There, there's, how, however time is working, that, that's not part of the picture. Uh, correct, yeah. Actually, we, we do have an indication as to um, what the writer of the book of Revelation thought about the birth of Jesus. And that's in, in chapter 12 to where this, uh, this, this human child, this man child, is a descendant of the woman, and the woman seems to be a depiction of the people of God, and it says that he is born, and then it says that he is uh, caught up to heaven, um, not actually not up to heaven, uh, caught up to, to God and his throne, so we have an exaltation to God and to share, again, in God's rulership, um, but we have a, a human being, a human male, that descends from the people of God, so this it's not some sort of angel that leaves heaven and comes down. Um, it's, it's, it's a lineal human descendant from other human beings that define the people of God. Mm -hmm. So I, I think actually more weight should be given on that depiction uh, than actually scholars are, are currently doing. Interesting. Interesting. So, and, and then in chapter five, it, it's similar where 
you know, the, no one, no one in heaven and earth or under the earth is able to open the scroll, which, like, yeah, you're you're making interesting points about time, but to, I I still can't help but feel like there was at least a time where Jesus was nowhere to be found. <laughs> Um, and then Jesus is introduced seemingly with his human lineage, right? Lion of Judah, root of, root of David, right? That, that, that is how Jesus gets introduced into this sort of throne room scene narrative is again with his human um, uh, messianic kingly lineage. Yeah. And, and of course, the, it's the, the, the lamb that has been slain. So the, the understanding is that um, Jesus has died, he has been raised, and he has been exalted to this uh, position of power. Um, you know, whether or not we want to pause it, that there's a, a big time difference there. I, I think probably the emphasis there of asking the question for so many verses, uh, who was worthy? No one in heaven on earth was was worthy. Uh, and the weeping that is there. I mean, because like, John weeps because of this, and an angel comes and tells him about Jesus. Uh, so mm -hmm. the point is, John is present for this. So right. this is happening, presumably at the time of, of John receiving this revelation. Um, at least that that persuades me at this particular moment. Sure, sure, that's interesting. And so, so what? So we we get the the new songs, and um, I happen to particularly like Handel's Messiah. That sure. that's one of my favorite Christmas traditions is listening to Handel's Messiah. And so uh, I I particularly like uh, Revelation chapter five because I think. Uh, the handle does a good job of uh, bringing this, these sort of passages to to life. So, what what what's sort of going on in the the new songs, as they're called, um, that are being sung to to God and Jesus? Well, there, there's a couple of things that are they're going. Well, I'll make I'll make three particular points. Um, it's it's interesting that after the redemption of the Israelites coming out of Egypt, you have what is called the Song of Moses. Uh, that, that symbolizes their redemption um, from this sort of like pagan ruler. And of course, uh, Rome being depicted as kind of the pagan ruler, um, like Egypt is, is not uh, too foreign to the book of Revelation. Uh, so I think drawing on that new song from, I think it's Exodus 15, that's there. Uh, the new song also is a way of introducing some of the Psalms in particular, I think uh, at the end, like in the late 140s, something like that. Um, and then uh, also, Revelation is is definitely trying to use uh, a call and response worship theme to persuade the readers to only worship God and the Lamb and to give up worshiping the Roman Emperor and his family and that sort of stuff there. And so, uh, depending on how you count them, there's like seven to nine different hymns in Revelation. And it's very interesting because a lot of readers don't think, oh, when I think of Revelation, they don't think of hymns and worship. They don't think of a book that is encouraging them to worship. And yet we know that so many of our even ancient and modern hymns are drawn directly from Revelation. So I think it, it's it's doing a lot of things as pr um, promoting Jesus as this Moses-like figure that has actually redeemed people in a way that's relevant. Uh, it's drawing on the, the hymnic uh, psalms that at least those uh, Jewish Christian readers would be well aware of. And of course, even uh, the Gentiles that maybe were proselytes, they would be familiar with that um, in their liturgy, um, but also encouraging people to worship in an exclusive way of identifying that the one seated upon the throne and the lamb are the only people you're authorized to worship. You're not allowed to worship anyone else, not even the spirit. 
That's interesting. Mm-hmm. You can't worship the spirit, but you definitely can't worship the Roman emperor. Right. And nor can you uh, worship the angel who's giving you uh, the revelation that's Correct. explicitly called Correct. out later. Yeah. Yes. So so that that's a good point. So let, let's focus a little bit more on the topic of worship. What is what is worship in the book of Revelation? And and un, in what sense and under what qualifications is Jesus receiving worship? Yeah, so that I think we can we can look in uh, chapters four and five, and we can see because they're really parallel chapters where they have uh, two subjects and descriptions given about them, worship that is given to them, and then a reason for why that worship is given. Uh, so, I, to me, I think this is one of the clearest ways to to identify um, the understanding of God in the Book of Revelation and Revelation Christology. So, in chapter four, the subject is the one who is seated upon the throne. And he is the one who lives forever. He is the Almighty. He is the one who is and who was and who is to come. Um, they sing, uh, they, 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 they cite passages, Yahweh passages of him. And they say that uh, he, uh, I like this, um, in chapter 4 and verse 11, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you, singular, created all things, and because of your will, they were and they were created. Very interesting. That Notice, because of your will, or your desire, or your plans, or your purposes, they already were, and then they were created, implying that God had things in his mind of notional preexistence. So that, that is taught in the book of Revelation, and there are some Revelation commentators that have picked up on that. Um, so in chapter 5, we have someone different, okay? We have someone distinguished from the one seated upon the throne, who is a lion, is also a lamb, but he's died. He's a descendant of Judah, so we know he's a human descendant. Uh, he's, he's also um, the, of the, the shoot of David, so he's a descendant of David as well, so he's a human figure. Um, and, and he is worthy of worship because he was slaughtered and he purchased people with his blood from every tribe, tongue, and people, and nation. So the one who sits upon the throne, he's worthy to receive worship because he's the creator of all things. The lamb is worthy to be, to be worshipped because he died. Mm-hmm. So they're worthy of worship for, for different reasons. And not just died, but he died and he redeemed believing humanity, um, made them into this counter kingdom and priests that are on their way to um, ruling the earth. And so, uh, you know, and it's, I'd like to kind of read a little bit of this here. Sure. Uh, okay. Uh, let's see. So chapter five and verse 12 uh, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom, might and honor and glory and blessing. Okay, so he, he's given those things. And if you actually count those, there's seven of them. And so there's kind of a, a perfect sense of, uh, and that's that's not just, that's not worship per se, because you don't, you don't, I don't give might to Jesus. I don't give wisdom to Jesus. These are things of God that are now given to Jesus in light of his death and resurrection. Right. And it's adoption. like the heavenly choir recognizing what God has given to Jesus. Or yes, something. he is worthy yeah. of that. Uh, again, mm-hmm. because of his conquering his death and his resurrection is Marvin. Uh, and then it says, uh, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And this is the four living creatures kept saying, amen, and the elders fell down and worship. The point being there is that if the elders represent the people of God, then you as the reader should also follow and worship and since it's only worship is authorized to be given to the one seated upon the throne and the lamb, it means only those two and nobody else. 
Mm -hmm. So is there any distinction in the type, like, you know, a, a Roman Catholic or an Eastern Orthodox would distinguish perhaps between worship and veneration, right? You know, like, or, you know, uh, cultic worship and honor or something like that. You know, cultic worship is one of those phrases that a lot of modern scholars use to distinguish, you know, just kind of bowing before someone as an authority figure versus giving them, I don't know, some sort of extra religious kind of worship. Um, is there any of that distinction between the type of worship received between Jesus and God, or are they both bundled together in the same type of, of worship, would you say? You know, it's, uh, it, it's, again, it's one of those things that we have to nuance kind of carefully, because it's very clear that worship that was given to God formerly is now given to Jesus because he died, he rose, and he has been highly exalted, okay? Um, and so it's, you know, Revelation is not afraid of, do, of giving that sort of worship there, you know, but I can still find some distinction. So like in chapter 19, we have uh, uh, the phrase hallelujah being used there. It's actually the only occurrence of the name of God actually being reproduced into the New Testament, uh, although we just have the yaw part there, but uh, that is only used of God. It's not used of Jesus, not hallelujah to Jesus. Um, mm -hmm. Of course, hallelujah is the second person plural imperative of hallel. Uh, which means to, to give praise or to worship. Uh, and then the object there is Yah, which is Yahweh. Uh, and that is strictly speaking of God. It's not speaking uh, to Jesus. Um, we all know that uh, the verb uh, proskuneo is very flexible and many human beings can be worshiped. Angels can be worshiped. Human beings can be worshiped. Uh, exalted lords can be worshiped. God can worship in sight. Like that, that verb proskuneo is extremely flexible and that's widely known Um in the lexicons, okay? Uh, we do have uh, this, the rarer verb, latrevo, and I want to make sure I got the right passage for this, so, so bear with me as I, um, yes, I don't have all this stuff known off the top of my head. <laughs> um, so I think it's, I thought I was in like chapter 22, verse 3. Um, um, no, that's, that's not it. Um, yeah, oh, it is 22 verse 3. Okay, all right. Mm -hmm. uh, there will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will basically latrevo him. Well, who, who is the him? Well, the nearest antecedent is that that's the Lamb, but that doesn't always prove anything. There's a lot of times that the nearest antecedent is not right. Because um, elsewhere in the New Testament, latrevo, it, when it's used correctly, is specifically reserved for God alone. Okay, mm -hmm. so you, someone could actually make the argument, and it's been made, is that here you got Latrevo that is used specifically of the Lamb, but then again, it's not used of God. But it, I think it's, um, you know, so you have an, uh, an ambiguous place here that you have to make an argument uh, for. But formally, Latrevo is only used of God. It could be interpreted that way here, but I have to admit that grammatically uh, it's ambiguous. So we have to look at some other places as well. Like, so I, I draw on the fact that. Um, that hallelujah type language is only use of God. It's not used of the lamb. And the fact that the worship that is given to the lamb is specifically because of his death, resurrection, his conquering and his exaltation that, uh, that he has received this afford and this honor to be worshiped in such a fashion. And yet by doing so, Jesus has not been absorbed into the identity of God in the whole Richard Bauckham understanding of Christology. He is still the lamb that is distinguished from the one who is seated upon the throne. Right. But there still might be 
a two-tier understanding of devotion, right? With that Latreo Proscaneo distinction, or yeah. what you might say is, you know, uh, worship in the highest religious sense and worship in the kind of honor, venerate, and uh, you know that that sort of sense. Yeah, it, it it might be there that's intended. I just I can't prove it. And if, if something is ambiguous, I have to I have to admit that. Um, yeah. So I, I can't I can't prove that particular point uh, from mm -hmm. Revelation. I can find it in other places in the New Testament, uh, but I, I really try. Uh, as an interpretive scripture to really take each text on its own merits and not mm -hmm. just assume that, well, other texts say this, so this has to say this. I want to let Revelation make its own argument. Sure, sure. That's interesting. So do you think that the, the non-Christian Jews in the context, right, because it's clear from the letters that there are uh, non-Jesus uh, acknowledging Jews, uh, in there, yeah, in there, there are synagogues, yeah. There are synagogues and non-Jesus worshiping Jews yeah. in the context of the Christian communities that he is writing to, and historically, you know, obviously that makes perfect sense. Um, would they have been alarmed? Do you think by the Christian practice that is sort of being described here and presumably being practiced in the churches that he's writing to, or do you think? Would they have been alarmed that they were worshiping Jesus in this way, or would they have been alarmed that they were worshiping Jesus <laughs> in this way, as opposed to the the act itself? Yeah, I think the the understanding of of the the Jewish Messiah, um, which for them was obviously not Jesus, if they're non-believing Jews, um, the understanding of the Messiah uh, in in a lot of Jewish literature is that the Messiah would be a, a highly exalted figure. Um, you know, Psalm 2 was read in that way, um, you know, ask of me and I will give him the nations as his inheritance, uh, the very ends of the earth as his possession. Mm -hmm. uh, I've already alluded to Psalm 8, to where uh, God crowns this human figure, or at least Adam, um, with God's own glory and honor. God shares his own glory with, and his honor with a human being. Um, and so that's, again, that's God sharing his, his prerogatives and his attributes with, um, with mortals, with, with human beings. And so I don't think, I mean, and again, that's, that's in the Hebrew Bible. That was there, you know, a thousand years before Jesus was even born. Uh, so I, I think that that wouldn't have been very controversial for um, pious Jews, uh, mm -hmm. like what Jews believe. Obviously, we can't even talk about, you know, this. We can't talk yeah. about Judaism in the singular Um but it, probably the more controversial thing is, as you said, uh, was identifying Jesus as that particular um, Messiah. But I, I don't think there's anything that is non-Jewish about giving high praise to uh, God's uh, authorized and anointed Messiah. Even the Son of Man, which uh, from Daniel's perspective, um, I think represented uh, a, a, a single person that uh, represented the, the suffering people of God. It says in Daniel 7, 14, it says, and to him was given dominion, glory, and kingship. Okay, who gave it to him with, with that divine passive? God gave it to him. God gave mm -hmm, mm -hmm. this human figure dominion, glory, which is something that God has, mm -hmm, and kingship. Mm -hmm. Okay, so if God gives it to him, then, then I don't see why we should be very upset about that. So I, I understand the, the need to make a distinguishing a distinguishment between uh, worship given to God and given to Jesus. Um, but I'm trying to highlight this fact that God has given so much to Jesus. And even biblical Unitarians have not given 
much weight to those texts that actually make that point in the New Testament. Uh, mm-hmm. And we don't have to worry about it. Like I just say, look, this is what the New Testament does. Right, right. Um, so yeah, yeah, that, that, that's very interesting. Um, let's see here. I, I, moving on a little bit. Well, I think most of the Christological action is captured in the first five chapters. Um, there's still a, a, a bunch of relevant nuggets later on. Um, like a specific question that I have is um, chapter 1913, where he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. Mm-hmm. Um, in what sense is he the word of God and what are we supposed to make of that? And uh, we're, we're mostly sticking in the book of Revelation, but obviously that question brings up, uh, you know, the gospel of John and, and other such questions and, and sort of logos theology and all of that. Right. Uh, what, what has convinced me is that, um, it was, well, the variety of reasons, uh, is that when you look at the phrase uh, word of God uh, elsewhere in Revelation, it always without exception means the spoken gospel message. It never is the personified creative speech of God that we see like in Genesis 1 or Psalm 33 or John 1. Uh, and of course, I don't automatically make the connection between John and Revelation because they're not written by the same person. So, you know, I'm not automatically going in that direction there. Um, we know that Revelation depicts Jesus as a faithful gospel preacher because he is the faithful witness, meaning he is the faithful person who preached and died on behalf of that. And we know that his witness um, is something that the, his, it, actually his testimony is something that is supposed to be adopted by the readers of Revelation as part of their mandate. Uh, you can actually see this. Uh, we talked about the, the opening um, verses actually because chapter one and verse two is still part of the same sentence of chapter one and verse one that so talks about john who testified to the word of god and to the testimony of jesus christ and uh, most scholars are actually reading that word and as this exegetical k as in the word of god namely jesus's testimony so the gospel that john is testifying is the same testimony that jesus himself preached that got him martyred and so john is depicting himself as a faithful preacher. The point is, yeah, of of course, the word of God is going to be defined as this image that we're going to use of Jesus because he is the the prototype of what a faithful gospel preacher looks like. And of course, having different titles and names that are depicted on the people, um, you know, like Christians are told in chapter three and verse 12 that the name of God the name of Jesus God in the name of New Jerusalem are identified onto, onto faithful believers. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, like if the name of God is written on, on the, the forehead of, of believers, it doesn't mean that they are God. It's just that mm-hmm. that there's a symbolism of, of, of what that, that symbol means, yeah, the identification. Yeah. Um, but I don't see any, the point is I don't see anywhere in Revelation to where the word of God has the same sort of connotations of John 1 being the personified speech of God that God used as the agent to create the world. Mm-hmm. Sure, sure. That makes sense. Um, so I guess what what arguments do Trinitarians make from the book of Revelation 
to argue for their theology. We kind of maybe mentioned Richard Bauckham, so maybe we could, you know, focus a little bit on him, I guess. So he he's one of the I guess, most prominent uh, oh, scholars yeah. that focuses on the Book of Revelation. What what is sort of his understanding in his interpretation, and, and what would you say maybe are, are what you think are some of the flaws or problems with it? Oh man, uh, well, that, that's a very big question. I know, yeah, but I, 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 I would not. I don't know if I could recall exactly what are his particular arguments. So I would be really careful if I'm mm-hmm. on a recording here. I don't want to misrepresent anybody. Um, so I, I can tell you the the typical arguments that are used to argue for a very high Christology and Revelation, and why I don't particularly find them convincing. Sure. Um, so so like in in, in chapter one. Uh, we have uh, chapter one and verse four, where we have the epistolary introduction of Revelation, because yes, Revelation is an epistle. Uh, chapter one and verse four, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace and peace uh, from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before the throne, and from Jesus Christ. Okay, So some people will say that is God, the seven spirits, which is a way of describing really the one Holy Spirit. And from Jesus. Okay, well, you don't even, you don't have a Trinity there because the Trinity is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, not God, the Spirit, and Jesus. So by having God there distinguished, you already don't have a Trinity. Um, it'd be the only time in Christian literature that the Holy Spirit sends any kind of letter or greetings. That's not found anywhere else in the New Testament. Um, you know, so so I, I just it just doesn't work. And the seven spirits um, later attend before God's throne as again. It's plural spirits. It seems best read as angels. Uh, so that's one particular thing. Of course, we talked about the titles that are given uh, to God and to Jesus. Um, we've already talked about that and how I don't think that's very uh, convincing. Um, in chapter 3 in verse 14, it says that Jesus is the Arche of creation. That's my modern Greek pronunciation there. Um, and so some people say, well, that's, that means he's the beginning of creation. Okay, well, that's, that's drawing us back. The John chapter one. Well, um, it's interesting. At best, that, that's Arian, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. At, at, at best, that's that. Um, but what I, what I found is that when Jesus introduces himself at the beginning of these letters to seven churches, he typically is drawing on a description of himself that he's already used in chapter one, and we've already seen in chapter like in chapter one and verse five that Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth, using uh, the word archon there, the one who is ruling, um, and so. It seems that Revelation's already told us that uh, this word "archi" and its semantic, you know, bubble of range, already means ruler. So I think depicting Jesus as the ruler of creation um, in a letter that's going to tell believers that if they conquer, they're going to share in Jesus' own rulership and His throne. That seems to be more persuasive to me. Right. Just just as a clarifier for people who might not know Greek as well, the word "archi" can mean first like i don't know archetypal or something or it can mean ruler like monarch single ruler yeah. and so so the, the you're you're distinguishing you could either jesus is either the first of god's creation or the ruler of god's creation and i i think that you're right that context and the other parts of revelation make it clear that he's the ruler of god's creation and even then if he's the first thing that god created you're at best an Arian, so yeah yeah um, we talked about the, the Revelation 19 passage where Jesus uh, is described with the image of the word of God. Some people say, well, that's 
that's clearly Johannine Logos theology. Um, that's just not anywhere in Revelation. You have to read that into the text and you have to redefine how word of God and, is used. And, and even then, Revelation is a pretty clear, it mentions creation multiple times and it just yeah. clearly ascribes it to God alone, right? We, we talked about the reasons why God was worshiped in chapter four. It's, it's pretty clear how, uh, how the book of Revelation thinks that creation happened. Yeah. And actually, I, I don't have a problem saying that Jesus um, is, is the embodiment of the word or Jesus is the embodiment of wisdom. I think New Testament writers had no problem uh, saying like, hey, Jesus is where you find wisdom right now. Jesus is wisdom's embodiment. I have no problem thinking that. I just don't think that's what Revelation is saying of mm -hmm. Jesus at that particular place. So it's not some sort of knee-jerk reactionary interpretation on my part. I'm just trying to take seriously how this language is used throughout Revelation. Um, we have, um, in chapter 22, uh, it's, it's, we actually now start to see it's the throne of God and the lamb. And so we, we now start to see that, okay, we've talked about Jesus receiving this authority, receiving this honor, being so highly exalted. Now we're going to start to talk about, uh, Jesus now sharing in God's throne. This is not a literal depiction, by the way, if you look up in heaven of two people sharing a chair. Uh, of course, the, the imagery of, of a throne, I've talked about this before, involves uh, people who are in charge, uh, people who have kingship, people who have authority. Uh, and of course, Jesus has that because God has given it to him. Uh, mm -hmm. So so people look at those and they say, well, look, you know, Jesus is co-equal up there. Well, no, he's not. I mean, Jesus clearly died. Jesus was created. Jesus was born. Jesus descended from the line of Judah. Jesus descended from the line of David. Uh, oh, here's the other one. So that it talks about Jesus being the root of David, um, but this this word uh, uh, rizo um, can mean root, as in the origin, or it could mean the shoot. Now, Jesus is not the root of David in the sense that Jesus is the origin of David. Jesus is the mm -hmm. shoot of David, and actually um, mm -hmm. all Greek lexicons, the BDAG lexicon, uh, regard the instances of this showing up in Revelation. I think it's chapter 5, verse 5, and somewhere in chapter 22. Uh, that needs to be translated as, as the shoot of David, not the root of David. The depiction mm -hmm. there. He's like, he's lower on the family tree, not higher on the family he's tree. He's an extension of the family tree, not yeah. unlike the uh, the branch mm -hmm. uh, that we see um, in like Jeremiah and Zechariah um, in the Dead Sea Scrolls and stuff like that. So, so th those are typical arguments that are given. Um, but the, the thing is with Revelation, like, like any other passage, you can't just pick one argument and ignore everything else that's there. Um, I, I tend to assume uh, there were some older uh, scholarly arguments that Revelation had multiple uh, authors and different revisions. Uh, that's actually been debunked uh, pretty pretty lately um, in the last five years or so. Uh, they, they still see that it's a cohesive uh, uh, single author um, writing it. Um, so I, I'm assuming that this author is, is going to be consistent with his depiction of, of God and Jesus. Maybe I shouldn't assume that, but I, I tend to see a, a consistent portrayal. Um, and what I don't see is the lamb being co-equal, co-eternal, and of the same essence as the one seated upon the throne. I don't see that. Uh, mm -hmm. I see him depicted um, with all of these human qualities. I don't see him depicted as an angel or an archangel. Um, and so that seems to uh, fit with actually what I see in the rest of the New Testament. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so I guess that was a pretty good summary statement, and I think now might be 
Well, I guess maybe one one last question about the book, and then I'll ask you sort of summarize. Um, the Holy Spirit. What what would we say? What if we had to briefly talk about the pneumatology of the Book of Revelation? How, how does the Book of Revelation depict the Holy Spirit? Yeah, it's actually interesting. The Holy Spirit does not play as much of a role in Revelation that people had originally thought. Um, I talked about it in each of the letters to seven churches in chapters two through three that we have this refrain. Um, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Uh, that indicates that um, for these original readers who might not even know who John is, that this revelation is inspired by God, meaning it's authoritative and it's transformative for their own communities. Um, of course, the fact that each of the letters to seven churches, you know, it's written to, let's say it's written to Ephesus, but it says what the Spirit says to the church is means that it wasn't just limited for Ephesus. It's meant for all the churches, and I think even for us readers today. So it means that this book is, in, I think, intended to be inspired uh, for readers to be transformative for Christians throughout history. Um, but the Spirit doesn't do a whole lot in Revelation. It's not actually there. Uh, in fact, actually, the Bride of Christ in the church, um, the believing people of God, actually has a much larger role um, in, in Revelation. I, in my recent podcast, I talked about um, the counterpart to the the, the three unholy triads. Uh, the mm -hmm. counterpart to the dragon is the one seated upon the throne. The counterpart to the beast from the sea um, is the beast, namely the lamb. And the counterpart to the false prophet is actually the, 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 the two witnessing prophets, which is an image for the church that preaches the gospel. And so it's interesting that it's actually, because a lot of people had formerly thought, well, unholy trinity is the opposite of the holy trinity, but it's actually not the holy spirit. That's that third aspect. It's mm -hmm. the believing church. And so I think the mm -hmm. believing church actually has more. Actually, it's, it's the, um, what's, what's the word for that? The ecclesiology is actually stronger than the pneumatology in Revelation. Sure, sure. And um, uh, the phrase, uh, I was in the spirit, right? John, John says that at least a couple of times. What, what does that mean? Yeah, it just means that he's having a prophetic trance. I think it's, yeah. it, that's drawing off what we see uh, in Ezekiel. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's, he's having a, a spiritual experience uh, that, that actually takes him and elevates him into places. Like I said, it's, it, that shows up in Jewish apocalyptic works, but it's, it's primarily drawing on what we right. see at the beginning of Ezekiel. And so that's part of the pneumatology. That's the Holy Spirit that sort of brings you into this, uh, this revelatory state. Yeah. Well, yeah. the interesting thing is that we as readers get to like be kind of passive participants in John's revelatory experience. I don't think People have kind of seen how that functions. And so it happens to him, but we get to watch and see mm -hmm. what it's like. And we get to listen and we get to see all those experiences as he remembers them and writes them down. Right. And things that the Holy Spirit is not, the Holy Spirit is not on a throne. The Holy Correct. Spirit is not worshipped. The Holy Spirit is not sung to. Uh, and all of those sorts of things are just reserved for, for God and then God and the Lamb. Right. Right. It's, mm -hmm. We talked about how Revelation chapter four has this depiction of a subject, uh, worship given to that subject and the reason why that worship is there. Same thing in chapter five. You would expect there to be something in chapter six of the Holy Spirit, but it's not there. Yeah, it's not there. The Holy Spirit's never even seen, really. Right. Yeah. yeah. Like we see the throne. We see the one on the throne. We see the lamb, see the creatures, see, you know, we see a lot of things. But yeah. one of the things that we never see is, is the Holy Spirit. Yeah, and and I think that's that would be uh, something that we would expect from from Judaism to where 
uh, God's spirit is just the extension of God's uh, presence and power. Um, I don't like limiting like the spirit is the power of God. That's not enough. Like it's, 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 it's the extension of God's presence, uh, mm-hmm. God's presence in action, God's power in action. And so it's not a thing that I think you would like look at and say, ah, I see it right there. It's red. Or right. it's Mm-hmm. wouldn't see that but it, it makes sense that the spirit communicates to uh to the churches uh and the spirit is it is is how god interacts um you know with with john uh, in his revelatory uh trance-like experience sure sure um so i guess briefly how, how would you summarize what, what what you think the christology of the book of revelation is and, and what the the main takeaway message of what we've been talking about is yeah i think revelation uh depicts only one god and it has to say that in the midst of a culture and even christians that think it's okay to worship other gods namely the roman emperor uh that one god is the one who is seated upon the throne um, and there is the lamb who is a human being who has died. He has been raised from the dead. He's been exalted to heaven, and he has been extremely highly authorized to the point to where he can share in God's titles, God's prerogatives, God's authority, God's uh, kingship. Glory, and yet he re- yeah. Yes, his glory. And yet he remains a bona fide human being. Mm-hmm. And that, that's the important part of the, of the whole thing. Uh, and of course, Revelation is encouraging readers to give their undivided allegiance to the one who is seated upon the throne and the lamb, which means that they can't give it to other gods or go to pagan temples or to eat meat sacrificed to idols or anything else. And by doing so, uh, it depicts the lamb as the example in the terms of Christian discipleship for them to emulate, follow, um, speak like, and obey. Yeah, and and part of the message of that, like you you said, we we've been talking kind of academically and abstractly, but you you mentioned in the very beginning of your presentation that that you got interested in what conquering meant in the Book of Revelation, and that that was you know sort of a, a personal experience and something that was um, easy and good to preach about. I think that part of sort of the the take home message, similarly, is if Jesus is a human being right? We, he is, this, it isn't just some, you know, things that, that God does perhaps in, you know, conjoined to a human nature or what have you, that, that Jesus conquered as a human being, so therefore we are supposed to conquer likewise, and many of the things, not all of the things that Jesus has received are things that we also will look forward to receiving. Jesus, in a certain sense, remains unique and first in rank, among humans, and that will never change. But but many of the things that Jesus does receive, like even being invited onto God's throne, is something that that the fellow Christians that that stay true to the end, that finish faithful, have to look forward to. Yeah, yeah. This, I mean, you can you can actually already see some of that uh, in Revelation. Like Jesus is, uh, he's described as the one who is the shepherd of the nations. Uh, gets translated incorrectly in some translations as the ruler of the nations. Uh, the verb pimeno uh, means to shepherd. Um, and Jesus actually invites uh, the churches to participate in that shepherding process in Revelation 2, 26 through 27. So Jesus already sharing his uh, role and responsibility uh, with his followers uh, as they have demonstrated fidelity to following Jesus' uh, faithful gospel preaching uh, the, the endurance that Jesus demonstrated, and the willingness to be faithful even to the point of death. 
So it's, it's, it's highly practical for a book. Mm -hmm. Well, well, that's very good. Um, so Dustin Smith, again, he's the host of the Biblical Unitarian podcast. I will link to that into the, in the description of this video. I would high, highly recommend listening to that podcast. I suspect almost all of my listeners probably already do. But in case you don't, uh, yeah, I, I'll, I'll link you to that. And um, I look forward to hearing the, the rest of your, your series on the book of Revelation there. And much of what we covered and even more in depth than what we covered today, ha you've already talked about on the podcast. So um, thank you very much, Dustin, for your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. Sure. And I will stop.